What is going on, everybody? Hopefully, all are well out there. We've had an eventful week um, in sports cards, so I almost felt like I needed to recap it just for myself. Like, so much uh, different stuff happened. There were lots of things uh, going on. We could, I mean, any given week, one of one of these stories would have been uh, all we could have talked about. And there seem to be several uh, things that happened. So we're going to recap um, a little bit of the National Sports Collectors Convention. Uh, my brother is in Vegas. Uh, literally, he's in Vegas. And so I don't think he wants to be bothered or uh, I don't think he really has anything else to say. Uh, so it'll be my account uh, basically watching. I followed all this stuff on Twitter and uh, through my talking privately also with my brother and other people that are there. So, um, you know, I'll give you my take on it. Another thing I'll give you my take on is uh, we'll recap the NFL Players Association. I continue to get questions about this. I get people to, they're confused if this is logos, if this is players, even though it's NFLPA. They're confused what this means. And I totally understand that licensing's not like everybody's forte, but, uh, you know, it's not mine either. But uh, I will give you my kind of recap on this. I think a lot of there was a lot of misconception. A lot of people thought saw this two hundred million dollar uh, tag, and and to all of us and the normal anybody not named uh, Warren Buffett and and outside of a few billionaires, you know, even to like LeBron James, two hundred million dollars is a lot of money. But this is two hundred million dollars to players, where ten of them make two hundred twenty million dollars in a year, and this is going to thousands, hundreds, of, probably hundreds of players, maybe even thousands. I don't really know how that works, so it's really not a big figure. And so I'll talk about that. So we'll talk about the NFLPA, kind of the money, and I want everybody out there to understand how the what this two hundred million dollar really represented, and the fact that it really wasn't a whole lot of money. So I'll get to that. And finally, I have some listener, two listener topics. One's going to be on topic and the other one's going to be off topic. And again, I appreciate, I'm, I'm, I'm a little behind. If you've been contacting me via email and Twitter recently, DMs and stuff, I'm a little behind. I probably have, you know, two hours worth of getting back to people on email. Uh, so if you've emailed me and I haven't got back to you, that's why. Um, I've gotten a, a lot and I've had some stuff to do, so I will get around to that this week, though. Um, but I've been reading our listener suggestions for uh, topics on the show, and this one came in a while back. I should have the person's at least initials or where they're from, but... You know, the the quality of the sports card show after six years here is not, still hasn't risen to that level. So thank you to the person that sent this question and you know who you are. Will nostalgic sets like Topps Archive be popular in many years? And will kids today want to collect 2010 Topps in 20 years? I thought that was a cool question. So I'll give you my opinion on that. And I'll give you my opinion on... I've gotten numerous emails about stocks, and so we'll come back total off-topic kind of – I'll try to wrap it up in maybe five or ten minutes, just kind of an overview on what I've been doing basically the last six years. I mean, you guys hear me on this podcast, and I try to – I don't know if I want to admit this, but I have to pump myself up sometimes. I don't drink Red Bulls or those five-hour energies or you know do what Justin Johnson does, although – what Justin Donson does after you get hooked on cocaine, it ends up bringing you down. And you could always tell when he talked. But anyways, I don't 
get myself pumped up artificially, but, uh, you know, sometimes I'm on this podcast and I have to fire it up a little bit. I, you know, I don't want to sit here and just blandly talk about cards. So I try to give you my take and I try to give it to you hard. It's kind of like that Emerald Lagasse. I remember he had like a show and he would go bam and, you know, he doesn't sit in his own kitchen and go bam and, and, you know, when the camera's on, he puts on a show. And so when the mic's on, I try to make it a a show here. But trust me, when this mic's turned off and, you know, even on Twitter, it may sound like I'm all bent out of shape all the time. And no, guys, we're talking about five like less than one percent of what i do and uh the other 99 percent is spent with family and friends and hanging out and watching sports um but i've slipped in probably 20 percent of my life as stocks over especially the last six years especially the last three or four years um as it's continued to go higher you have to uh you know you got to start you really got to start to i had to really start taking it seriously Um, just the amount of risk and the amount of capital I was investing, you have to take it seriously. So it's like a job for me. So I'll give you my breakdown on that. So five minutes into the show, we'll actually start talking about something. I I try to get these going as fast as possible, but you know, we, we fail sometimes national sports card show recap guys. This was in Cleveland. If you were sleeping, under a Mickey Mantle baseball card last week, you might have missed it, but a lot of interesting things happened at the show. The show itself, like my brother said on our interview uh, last uh, last week or a couple days ago, um, it's a show you want to go to. It's a show I want to go to. I just don't like, honestly, more than an hour or two on a plane, and I just want to get off. It's nothing about crashing and dying or being hijacked or you know, going poof into the sea. I don't really care if that's the way I go. That's the way I go. But honestly, being, I could be on the ground. I could be in a car for a few hours and I just want to get out. I want to take a break and stretch my legs. And you can't really do that on an airplane. So it's not for me traveling. I mean, if I have to, if someone dies, heaven forbid, or there's a wedding or something like that, or I want to, you know, for some reason, go on a vacation that far, I'll do it. But the NC, NSCC show, not not up there yet um, for me. But if it was out here on the West, like I said, they should have some smaller shows. And I think um, you might see that. Maybe instead of doing these big blowout shows, maybe they put one, you know, in another area and just lend the name, lend the national name and, and call it what, like, I go to these conferences where now it's West, East, Midwest, Northeast, Canada. I mean, you can, you can expand these things. They could put it in Vegas. They could put it in San Diego or LA or wherever, um, Seattle. I don't know. There's lots of places they could put it out here on the West. So Anyways, looked like a great event. I think you should go. But it it looked like attendance. I know my brother said the space itself, the International Expo Center in Cleveland, was large and was a big sprawling space. Um, so it wasn't – maybe people didn't look as closely together. But from everything my brother showed me, everything I've seen even from other people, attendance was – We'll call it flat at best compared to other years um, or down. My brother said the year in Baltimore felt really wet and even uh, 
uh, Chicago, outside of Chicago. I don't think it was in the heart of Chicago, but um, the Chicago location they had felt a little more um, busy, I guess. Uh, this was more of a kind of a, a spread out, and, and that's kind of more, in, you know, if I was going, I wouldn't want it to be 10 deep and, and having to elbow people out of the way to get the good deals. It's actually better for you that it's not this massive Comic-Con type event. Um, so, you know, but for the industry, it shows that at best are the key event card show of the year where a lot of stuff happens. And a lot of people like me and other collect. I saw lots of collectors out there um, commenting on our videos that they'd love to go. They want to go. They're going to go next year. Or they're going to try to go here in the next couple of years. Um, it's an event we all want to go to, but it's sparsely populated. So how, how badly do you really want to go? You know what I mean? Like, just like me, I say I want to go, but I'm not willing to fly four hours, four and a half hours on a plane there and back, uh, to do it. So maybe I don't really want to go, but, uh, so, but most of you probably live closer to the epicenter where there's, you know, if I was an hour away, two hours away, I would go, but it's, it's, you know, halfway across the country. I'm cool. I'm not, I'm not going to do that, but, so we'll see. It's, again, flat to down probably on the attendance. Uh, my brother uh, informed me many dealers said it was, you know, nobody was, you know, certainly some uh, dealers probably had a really blowout year or great year. Um, but for the most part, sales were probably flat to slightly down. Um, but certainly not. a. I didn't hear a lot of doom and gloom stories except for the Breakers Pavilion. And I guess I'll move into that. And I, like I said on the last show, or I think even on Twitter, I said I could have lapped these. I could have taken a victory lap on these guys all week, taking screen caps of their uh, their own streams. They were saying it and typing it in the chat that it was slow. They couldn't sell spots. They had spots left over for all kinds of stuff. I saw one breaker go to the main stage and that break wasn't even sold out. So here he was going to get in his main stage moment and the break didn't even sell out. So, um, and he, I, I guess he had to eat the spots. I don't know, but, uh, there it, it, I think people thought there was going to be walk-up traffic, and I saw the give and take. Sometimes watching the streams, somebody would come up and would want to buy in a spot, but he'd want to know when it was. And often these breakers, their answer was, when it fills. And so as a customer, I want to give you $60, and then you give me my end of the bargain when it fills. You could be long gone. You could be gone from the national. And now I got to know, oh, I got to find this guy on on uh, streaming whatever TV at, to get my break. You're not going to email me probably when the break happens. You're not going to give me a heads up. You're just going to go live. And when it, the minute it fills in your room, you're going to start breaking the boxes. And so it's it's really unorganized. Most people were really unorganized. I will say not every breaker lost their shirt. Some of them probably did okay or as well as a normal week. But those guys were already doing well, a.k.a. latent sports guards. When I say there was crickets in the pavilion, it was almost everybody but him because he already was doing well. He already had a bunch of breaks. He already had, and I put well in quotations. I don't know his finances. I don't know his profit margin. I don't know, you know, basically how well he's doing, but he was at least filling through his breaks and breaking stuff and kind of pushing it through. So hopefully everybody realizes 
out there, not only the breakers themselves, that you guys are a sideshow. My brother told you that last year, that you were a sideshow. So they set up a pavilion and a, quote, main stage and put you guys in the corner of the building, off to the side. And it was almost like that was kind of a, the main stage was kind of a, a place you went to rest your feet. But the minute you you recharge or you wanted to go back out on the show floor, you got up and left because nothing at the main stage was really holding your attention. So this is why, and I hope you guys looked around the room. You were over in the Breakers Pavilion, which was supposed to blow up the hobby, and you looked at the other show floor. And why I say attendance was sparse, at least the rest of the show floor dealers had people in front of their booths and walking by and buying stuff. So it really was the Crickets Pavilion. And we and it was predicted not... I formed my opinion on the Crickets Pavilion from Mojo Breaks podcast. I listened to theirs, I don't know, a month or two ago. And they said it's they went to the National last year and tried to do the same thing. I don't know if they went to the... They talked about maybe going to the Industry Summit. I don't know if they broke last year at the National. I can't remember if they did or not. I think they did some did some things. I can't remember if they were going full-time, but they said it was hard. It's hard to travel with this stuff and sell it through and expect your customers to be awake at, you know, 10 in the morning and want to buy in or have a bunch of extra money all of a sudden. It's hard to do. And so I listened to them and they said, we're not breaking at the national anymore. We're going to go there and have a VIP party. We're going to go there and have, uh, you know, walk around the walk around the floor and pass out whatever flyers or whatever, or just talk to people. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't think the crickets pavilion was going to be crickets until I heard a breaker that said, "Oh yeah, it probably will be." Or then the people that go are going to lose their shirt. The people that are go are going to realize that that was a mistake. You guys need to start listening. There's people out there, group breakers. There's a guy that does group breaks, that does a podcast. And yeah, probably 99% of it is stuff you don't want to listen to. But they, Doug and Dan drop, especially Doug, especially, will drop little nuggets to basically tell you guys how to save money, how to do it better, how to do things right. And I'm not saying that Mojo Break does it perfectly or everything that they does is glorious. But at least you have a guy giving you tips. And then where do you guys think I get my opinions about this stuff? I listen to people that are sitting there grinding and doing it. I'm not just making this stuff up out of thin air without asking quote unquote experts or people that have been doing it for a lot longer than me. So it's not at all shocking that it was a crickets pavilion over there with the breakers. We, I, everybody could have told you that. That had any kind of intelligent opinion. What ended up happening is you guys got schooled by Ripping Wax. I think Ripping Wax was the guy that kind of put this on. And he looks like he has some guys doing breaking for him. He kind of is like a ringleader type guy. You guys got schooled by him. Because he bought all that space from the National. And then he subleased it all to you guys. So he can make a profit. And Panini. Panini got you even worse. They charged you $10,000 for a quote party i mean you could have a hell of a party you could have a hell of a weekend for you could have a hell of a week for ten thousand dollars and you guys spent ten thousand dollars to go to a party and not to mention okay yeah you get product you got product you guys had to overpay 
That product wasn't even selling. You could buy that stuff right now at your distributor. It wasn't like it sold out this week and it was so hot. You could go buy 2013 National Treasures football for, for 300 bucks. They charged you $500 to get into the VIP for it. So you overpaid. Got schooled. You guys got schooled. You probably lost a lot of money for no customers. For maybe incrementally you, you increase goodwill with your existing 17, 18 customers. And, you know, you didn't get anybody new because you weren't breaking. I thought it was funny. I was watching Breakers TV and it was the, the the Chris Cards Infinity guy was breaking and he always seemed to be breaking. There was Blowout was on there at, back at their facilities or whatever breaking. The Clouts and Chara guy was in Canada, I think, breaking. They were doing prime hockey every day, it seemed like. Um, so they were, and there was a lot of, there was, there was lots of other guys that I had never seen before, never interacted obviously with, or had even never heard of. And they were, I saw a guy doing Alan Ginter on kind of a low end stream. Looked like he was stuffed in the corner of his apartment, uh, doing Alan and Ginter box. He had several boxes there. There were guys doing all kinds of breaks. I saw guys doing elite football. I saw guys doing uh, strata basketball stuff that people couldn't fill at the national. I saw people doing it back at home. So, man, you guys got ripped off. You barely got any customers. It looks like you, the guys that stayed at home from the National might have even got a leg up on you because at least they didn't, you know, didn't have any hiccups and uh, kind of service for their customers. That's the problem with group breaking too. It almost ties you to a certain location and ties you to be at home and ties you to be at work or whatever in front of this webcam to make money. You can't go to the National and make money. I mean, my brother went to the National and... You know, in, in locations like Chicago and Baltimore, I know he spends a lot more money on, I think he got a hotel room for like $40 uh, in Cleveland. So he didn't really spend, he we, he probably broke even in, and he didn't have to work. The stuff that he's got going on, I know for a fact, paid for his whole trip. And it has nothing to do with cards. It has nothing to do with the videos he put up. We're, we're going to make $20 probably in a whole year on those videos. Trust me. It's nothing. We put those videos up for you guys. We don't put them up to make money. We don't put up a bunch of articles with eBay affiliate links to make money. We do it because we enjoy it. And a lot of it's an act. Maybe I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't say that, but I think our regular listeners already know that have probably talked to me on the side or some of them that have met me know that I'm not like this in person. I'm not biting people's heads off or yelling at people. I don't give a crap. I got to fire myself up for this. So Top's booth was considerably smaller too. I thought that was interesting. I think uh, Top's booth was small, definitely smaller than Penny's, certainly smaller than Leafs. Upper Deck had a bigger presence. I think he, a lot of the like blowout cards and DA and uh, Steel City and some of these other guys had bigger, bigger booths uh, than Top's. And so it's it shows you um, maybe as we transition into our next segment, the financial situation at Top's. Yeah, they sell baseball cards. Yeah, they sell these t-shirts. And yeah, they have these apps that I'm sure cost a fortune. I mean, Tops Bunt, Tops Huddle, Tops whatever they got, I think are brilliant. I think are just fantastic apps that are way, uh, uh, way above the rim in terms of what anybody else is offering, not only just in this hobby, but even in terms of other apps. Now, obviously, it's not a Clash of Clans or a Words with Friends type app, but 
they are very they spent a lot of money on that stuff you can look at panini rewards app and that's basically just a website that's made into a, a native app no top subtle is a real app and tops bunt is a real app and i really i don't use them i am not on there playing i've downloaded i and played around with them but i'm not on there you know outside my first or second time playing around with them I, they didn't hook me but I know lots of other people that have been really engaged with that. So maybe that's where they're, I know they've talked, that's where they'd like to transition to. So, you know, maybe there's a future for Tops in there. Maybe they don't make cardboard anymore. Maybe they make, I'd hell, I'd certainly love a business model more based on digital cards than real cards. But Panini felt the urge to pay $200 million dollars for an NFL Players Association license. And I've been accused that I didn't, I had it mixed up. Uh, a lot of other people didn't really know what this means. Basically, look at what Panini does in baseball, guys. They can come out with baseball sets. Can they have the Yankees logo on there? No. Can they have any logo on there? No. But they can come out with sets because they have an MLB Players Association license. So obviously, that's the, that's the one license you need to really make cards of any professional athlete in a league. Can you make draft sets when they're kind of in limbo? Yes. But that's all you can do. So Panini, they want to make cards with Drew Brees on it, obviously, and and uh, Tom Brady and Andy Dalton. They want those guys on their cards. And Johnny Manziel, obviously. So they paid $200 million over 10 years. And I don't know how the deal works, but we're going to assume they did it for basically what what amounts to about $20 million a year. So they bought the exclusive right to put players on cards for the next 10 years for $20 million a year. Now, obviously, Panini now needs to go negotiate with the NFL. And that's to put 49er logos on the cards so they can make a call. They're the only ones that can make a Colin Kaepernick card. And so now all they need to do is essentially renew an NFLP license. It's not like they got to go get one or that they don't have an established relationship with the NFL already. You know, and it's not like Tops is probably going to be coming in there hard, uh, you know, rising, making it difficult for them to do that. It's a renewal, essentially. So they'll renew that. Trust me. I don't, I don't, it would be, it would be extremely unusual for Panini to secure an NFL PA license, but somehow not get the NFL P license. That's not exactly how that usually works out. Not that they'll be the only exclusive guy that can make, you know, has a deal with the NFL properties. But if Topps has one, all they can put is a San Francisco 49er helmet on the card. Or they can only put a, a New York Jets logo on the card or the sticker or whatever it is. They can't put anything else. They can't put Colin Kaepernick's face on there. So it's, it shows you how important it is, these players' association licenses. Yeah, you could have a, a, a license or not, but it's the players' association license that you really need. And if you have an exclusive with that, nobody else can really compete with you. And so Panini locked that in for $200 million. So is that a lot of money? I saw a lot of people saying, oh my God, it's an insane amount of money. It's ridiculous. Oh, how, how'd they do it? First of all, soccer stickers. 
But the long-winded answer is in 2012. Guys, you can the the NFL there was some judgment a while back, not that long ago, that made it that required that the 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 players associations from the NBA, NFL, MLB, any players association has to report publicly the figures that they get via royalties from Tops, Nike, EA Sports, all these people. When they're incorporated as a union, those those numbers, there's some document number that gets, you know, sent to the I don't know if it's the SEC or what. Um, but some these numbers are publicly out there. You can you already know if you if you any of you did any research before you said, oh, it's an insane amount of number. If you guys had read how much Tops and Panini had combined to pay the NFLPA over the last two years, you would agree with me that it's absolutely not an insane amount of money. In 2012, which was a good year, Panini and Topps combined for $22 million. And that's for the 2012 football season that, you know, they paid $22 million in 2013. So there's 22 million. They combined for 22 million. And Panini just locked in the next 10 years for 20 million. In 2013, for the 2013 football season, these. $25 million. So 2013 football, we all remember, sucked. Supposedly. Tops and Panini combined for more than the year before. Which was actually a good rookie class. Or at least certainly better than last year. So Tops and Panini combined for $25 million in, in payments to the NFL Players Association for a 2013 football class that sucked. And Panini just locked in the next 10 years for $20 million, $5 million less. I'm going to let that sink in. Guys, Panini just locked in the next 10 years at no growth. The hobby doesn't have to grow. They barely even need to recapture any of Topps' business. They barely even need to improve their own business. To not lose their shirt. Remember, Panini was already paying half, we'll, we'll assume, half this fee. So last year they paid $12.5 million to the NFLPA. What's another $7.5 million a year to knock tops out of the game? That's what they did. They literally knocked, kicked tops to the t- curb for less than $10 million. I'll let that sink in. And maybe you guys know now why Tops had such a small booth. They're not making any money. And don't be surprised if by 2016, Tops doesn't even, has been sold to somebody else. Certainly that's the plan at Madison Dearborn Partners. And those are the guys you guys need to be mad at. I saw people saying, oh, Panini won't be able to do this. Panini just paid too much. Oh, that's stupid. Exclusives are, are predatory, whatever. Guys, Madison Dearborn Partners has sucked all the money out of tops. And let me make it clear. It's Madison Dearborn Partner. Everybody talks about Michael Eisner. That idiot has a fund that owns 25% of Tops. So he doesn't get shit. Tops might do $100 million in business and it probably means less than 10,000 bucks in Michael Eisner's pocket. He barely owns any of the company. He's nothing. 
Madison Dearborn Partners, a private equity firm who specializes in buying businesses, kind of sucking them dry and kind of running them really lean and then flipping them a couple years later. That's what they do. They're like a guy that buys buys a Corvette and restores it and sells it. He doesn't care about the Corvette. He has fun driving it for a day or two, but he's trying to flip it. That's what Madison Dearborn Partners looks at tops. They don't care about baseball cards. They've liquidated this company essentially over the last seven years. And by not getting, not making, essentially not making football cards. Yeah, Tops might make football cards. Yeah, they'll probably maybe figure out a way to become the exclusive digital card provider or something like that. And that's a hell of a lot better idea than making this cardboard crap. But it it should show you guys. Tops got kicked to the curb for what amounts to a few million dollars. So obviously people, MDP doesn't care. Madison Dearborn Partner doesn't care. Certainly Michael Eisner doesn't care. You don't think he has a couple million dollars he could have thrown at this? He doesn't give a crap because he only his fund only owns 25%. And then of that fund, Michael Eisner probably only has a small piece of that. That's why you set up those funds. So Panini just locked in the next 10 years for, for nothing, really, in my opinion. Yeah, Panini will have to capture some of Top's business. Yeah, they'll have to go from making 17 to 20 sets to maybe 30 or more. And we can all argue, oh, will Panini be able to do it? Will Panini be able to make collectible sets? Really, it doesn't matter, guys. Look at the idiot breakers at at the VIP party that were willing to pay $10,000 of overpriced product that that wasn't selling. There's suckers every year that'll buy this stuff. Panini knows that. They don't give a crap. And in the end, they just kicked tops of the curve for seven, seven, eight million bucks, roughly. They don't care. And on top of that, they they sell soccer stickers. And soccer stickers of the collectibles business. Now, Panini, they're, they're one of the biggest comic book distributors in the international market and imagine how you know yeah spider-man and all that stuff's popular right now but trust me i've done a lot of research on this the movies are really big overseas now you know you got people in other countries you know really starting to fall in love with spider-man and superman it's like all american over there and so yeah comic books sell over there too they're they're basically the main player for that they have tons of different businesses what does tops do oh they sell baseball cards. What else do they do? Eh, not much. Nothing really big on it. Nothing bigger than baseball cards. So for Panini, seven, eight, ten million dollars to make tops go away every year is nothing to them. It's nothing. So when you're out there in the stratosphere collectors, hopefully this last 10 minutes, now you guys can be more informed and more intelligent. When people are saying, oh, Panini uh, just blew it out of the park and just blew tops out of the water and blew everybody out of the water. No, they didn't. They paid less than what the last two years combined for. And when you look at the numbers, they got rid of tops for less than $10 million a year. That's nothing. They did like 500 million euros in a bad year at Panini. 800 million euros, about a billion dollars in a good year. 
So just imagine if your bank account had a billion dollars in it and you just had to give $10 million to make some competitor go away, you probably would do it. I'm not saying Panini has a billion dollars in the bank, you know, that's sales, but you know, you do have that cash flow. So we'll take a break. I'm going to take a quick break, take a drink. And when we come back, we're going to go over our listener question. And will nostalgic sets like archives and even being nostalgic in general, probably, I'll, I'll even answer maybe that, um, you know, because I find myself, I, you know, I buy cards on check on my cards and I'll buy old tops fine. You know, I'll always buy anything old tops finest, especially old tops finest refractors and stuff like that. Um, rare inserts that probably are undervalued a little bit in terms of how rare they probably really are. Um, I, I'll buy that stuff. And will the future generation kind of feel the same about sets that are coming about today? You know, will they, they, they love contenders football in a few years. Will they love um, just even base sets of tops, you know, top series two, or whatever it is. It's a great question. So we'll answer that. And then on the back end, we'll have a off topic, uh, kind of stock rundown. I don't think I'll give any specific tips right now and I'll tell you why. Um, but I'll basically give you my, some of my philosophy. And we are back. I'm going to talk about getting nostalgics. a strategy I've even when I've talked to tops um, people on their uh, conference calls with this MLS stuff we've talked I remember we talked one time about um, kind of the nostalgic nature of their business and how they actually they're very tops is very aware of that and very in tuned with also that this generation of collectors that kind of grew up in the in the mid to late eighties uh, to nineties um, you know eighty nine you know, collecting baseball cards in like 88, 89, 90, 91 was like something that tons of kids did. And so now people like me are now getting jobs or, you know, getting lucky in the stock market or, you know, they go to college and they, they get a great job and they're, they're professional. And now they have, you know, they're raising their family. They have a car, they have a house, they have everything. And now they sit back and say, wow, I have a 401k. I have all this stuff. What I what I really want is my old baseball cards back and uh, stuff like that. And there there is some some push and push and pull there a little bit with the steroid era. Um, my philosophy, I think I've said that. I remember saying this. I remember we had a steroid show. I made like a little song. You can go back and look. I think it was early on in uh, the sports card show uh, archives. I. I think my opinion even then was as time moves on, we're going to look back on the steroid era even even more fondly probably. We'll probably miss all the home runs and all the incredible stuff that we saw. Yeah, it'll be tainted a little bit, but those are just records. Memories, you know, I don't – my memory of Barry Bonds is is – is less about steroids and more about him hitting all those home runs. Certainly a lot, a lot of them. 
So, and I think people will find that more and more as they go on. So this generation might be more nostalgic of that whole steroid era. I mean, it happened. And so it, it played a part in kind of blowing up baseball cards, um, so to speak as well. Um, but, uh, you know, I think this, this generation, the generation that really was around and really was collecting hardcore when, when the, when the boom happened, I think it's a good generation, um, but there's so many more of them. So to answer our question a little bit, um, will nostalgic sets like Topps Archives be popular in, in many years? And what he's saying is um, basically, you know, will Topps Archives is essentially a, a nostalgic set. Will we all get nostalgic? Like I was saying on the on the lead out, you know, I, I buy Topps Finest cards. I love buying 90s, late 90s, mid 90s uh, Topps Finest cards, especially the Fractors. I love old Topps Chrome and uh, love old even Bowman, Bowman Chrome and stuff like that. Old stuff, um, not really the current stuff. It kind of goes down in price a little bit too much. I don't think it's found its floor, but the old stuff I love because I I'm a little nostalgic toward. I remember those cards. I remember being that age and finest was like $3 a pack. And that was a lot. That was a lot of money to me. That was a lot of money to pay for a pack considering most of them were 50 cents and a dollar. So nostalgic. Will we be nostalgic about 2014 tops? 2014 tops heritage was just kind of a nostalgic set, but you can still get nostalgic over nostalgic sets. I think yes. I think everybody has that little bit of nostalgia in them. But this this current generation is probably going to be the most nostalgic because there were just more of us. There were more people collecting, obviously, back in the 80s and 90s. Like exponentially more people. So the the level of nostalgia is going to be equal to, I believe, the number of people that are collecting. And so it'll seem like there's a lot of people that are nostalgic out there. Um, but in 20 years, 30 years, when when the you know the 10, 12, 13 year olds kind of roll over uh, into into when they probably start being nostalgic, there'll be less of them out there. So yeah, the sets, you know, if they're still making baseball cards kind of the same way um, or any kind of cards the same way, I'm sure people will will be nostalgic to a certain degree, but not as much as as what we have going on right now. And so it is kind of a special time. And I think people out there, I, I know I was on check on my, I get on check on my cards. If you're not familiar, I've have, I think about seven or about eight. I should say we, the, this is kind of my brother and I pulling our money and pulling our resources on to check on my cards. Um, but we have probably 8,000 cards. I think we've had as many as 15, maybe even close to 20. I think we had, we were in the top 10 most number of cards a few years ago on the site. Since then, I've sold a lot, um, but I've been buying a little bit more. I kind of took some money off the table, uh, essentially, on the site. We made several thousand dollars, essentially, just buying a lot of low-end stuff. I love buying stuff on there for uh, eight, nine, ten cents and, and, and trying to, I try to run a double, I try to offer I maybe shouldn't, uh, maybe regular buyers of me, uh, will now know they can, you can usually offer me 20, 30, you can offer me 20% off on check on my cards and it'll instantly accept. If you offer me 30, 40, 50%, I'm probably still accepting because I'm probably still making money on the, on the sale. 
And so I like it to run at 100% margin on there, but you know, you, it ends up whittling down. So off not a very big investment. I think between my brother and I, we have a few thousand dollars invested, not very much uh, over the last, this is over the last three or four years on Check Out My Cards. And we've made several thousand. I know he has the figure. He keeps track of that figure a little closer than I do, but it's, it's good money. Um, that you can make on that site. And so I get nostalgic whenever I'm on there buying cards, um, especially with this NFL PA news. Now I've seen, I've read the forums. I've heard people say, oh, I'm getting out of collecting or I'm only collecting old Topps Chrome or I'm going to miss Topps Chrome. I'm going to miss Topps, uh, you know, this football and this football. Well, I think a little bit of them, while getting out of the hobby might be a little overblown, some of them might get a little nostalgic. They might be like, oh, screw Panini, but, uh, you know, I meant to collect all of 2008 Chrome, or I I want to get all the refractor cards, or I want to do my rainbow of my favorite player, or whatever. I'll I'll go back and do that now. Now that there's not, you know, two or three sets every month coming out now for football. Now I can well there still will be the Panini, but if you're only a Tops guy now, Tops ain't making football anymore. I I often buy Tops basketball. Tops hasn't made basketball in five six years for a while now. Um, I, I'm always willing to buy Topps basketball. If somebody has a really good price, I don't buy it at whatever price. If somebody has Topps basketball marked down, especially Topps Chrome and Topps Finest basketball marked down at too low of a price, I'll instantly buy it because people still buy that stuff. People still collect that stuff as much as maybe as much as some of this new Panini stuff. I get better prices on no name rookies and in 2000, 2001 Topps Chrome than guys that are playing today. So I think this, this to turn this as I often do, I turn whatever this this very loyal listener and someone I I really enjoy hearing from and talking to asked me a set about nostalgic sets and getting inside the collector's mind. I turn it into kind of a business question, but um, to to wrap up and summarize the question, I think people will be nostalgic in a few years, but or whenever they get to that age, but it'll always be in direct proportion with the number of people that were collecting it when they were young. Um, you know, yeah, you might have some other guys come in. Maybe there's something in the hobby that draws somebody that really isn't being nostalgic. They're just being a new collector. I think that always happens. Um, but I think this generation my generation essentially that is getting into their thirties and getting jobs and graduating and doing really well for themselves. Not saying I do, but, um, other people out there, they'll, they'll get nostalgic and they'll, and then they'll have, um, and there's a lot of them. I think that's the point is there are a lot of those people out there and the card companies would be wise to play into that. We, you know, maybe a nostalgia, maybe we can do 50. I don't know, 50, 50 cent packs or 75 cent packs, are are feasible with the packaging costs and gas and all that. I don't know, but certainly 99 cent. I don't know. There's not a lot of 99 cent packs even. And I mean, I remember score was 99 cents and there was some other 99 cent products out there, but it seems like those are even, those are really on the low end uh, in terms of, you know, 299 is kind of now the, that was high end for me. And they got to remember that. They got to remember the the whole group of collectors. Now the low end price for a pack is two ninety nine. That was the high end in like nineteen eighty nine or whatever. You know what I mean? So they got to remember that. 
you know, there's people that that aren't, you know, all obviously a lot of you re- listen to the radio show and listen to probably all the radio shows and listen to all the blogs and listen to Twitter and all that stuff. You guys are ingrained in this hobby. Two ninety nine pack is cheap to you. But imagine a guy that's been out of the game for the last 10 years. He's had kids. He's graduated. He's focused on his career. And all of a sudden he's like, man, I'd really want my Ricky Henderson cards again. But, oh, maybe, you know, maybe I know they still make them and maybe I'll get a pack or two. Oh, my God. Packs have gotten a heck of a lot more expensive. Maybe this hobby's not for me. And so that might be part of the problem. And so, you know, that's it's certainly part of the barrier of, you know, I think I I think I even did a show many, uh, many moons ago about a, a future sports card boom that could happen because you have this big group of people that collected in the 80s and 90s come back and get nostalgic and have money. But we we're coming back and we're kind of jaded or we're kind of bitter about it because the hobby has gone into a direction that has made it unsustainable for even the best companies like tops and some company that doesn't even really make all their money on cards is is really the king the king of the castle right now in panini So we'll see. Yeah, I think a really good question, too, and one I probably couldn't answer is, will Panini prestige football or in sets that we kind of think are kind of junky now? Uh, not that pre- all prestige is junky, but, uh, you know, essentially the base cards of a lot of this stuff and even the insert cards. Um, will we get nostalgic for, for sets that are kind of unfavorable today or not really collected heavily today? I don't know. That's a really, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the 80s and 90s that isn't worth a whole lot, um, at least at a really high price tag. So I'm not sure, but hopefully I answered the question a little bit. Um, but I think it's something interesting to monitor. This is something I've thought about for a while. And I thought um, how you could capitalize on it, not personally myself, but how the business of sports cards could capitalize on this nostalgia. And I've always thought that they've, you know, they've gone into the wrong direction of overpricing this stuff and going to the high end. I don't think the nostalgia guys want to pay $200 for a box, $300 on a box when that could have got you half the store in 1989. So, um, I think a lot of those guys want to get back to open. You know, I've gotten emails from other people saying it's gotten too, too easy now. You know, now it's like, now it's like, oh, I open a box and it used to be you got lucky if you got an insert or lucky if you got a rare card or certainly lucky if you got an autograph or a jersey. Now it's like that, that, uh, that desire is being fed. It's 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 a lot like, I don't know if I want to compare it to this, but since Dustin Johnson, the PGA Tour golfer that, it's hooked on cocaine apparently or has a cocaine problem. It's a lot like doing cocaine. You do cocaine your first time and you're high as a kite and you're like, wow, this is the best drug ever. No wonder everybody does cocaine. And then the second time you do cocaine, it's you get up there, but not as high. And then the third time you do cocaine, you get up just a little bit, but actually you fall probably further. And then as you go further and further along in your addiction, it cocaine brings you down and it starts depressing you and it starts making you almost numb. Um, and it's a really I know that not because I used cocaine or I've ever used cocaine, but I took a class in college that was all about drugs. And this was like in the height of the steroid era. So it was actually a really topical class we talked about drugs in an athletic environment i think that's what the name of the class was 
Uh, and we talked a lot about cocaine because that was really prevalent in the in the Major League Baseball and probably you know even sports right now. Obviously, clearly. Um, so, but essentially, that's what these card companies are doing. It used to be that uh, to get my cocaine hit, you know, I had to buy a case, and I got only one case hit, and it was like an insert card, and I had to open three or four cases to get an autograph card. And now it's like. Now I barely have to rip through any wax to get get a nice card or get kind of, you know, get that high of, oh, I hit something and maybe it's not good. Maybe, maybe it is good, but at least I got that high where it wasn't just all base. So I think Panini Prism Soccer was a good example that, yeah, stuff can sell. Um, you know, soccer's a little unique, but stuff can sell when it's not super loaded up with hits. I think baseball, Tops proves that with baseball with a lot of their sets. Now, yeah, not, some of them uh, might not sell that well, but, you know, for the most part, people do desire to open up um, Tops baseball products, not necessarily for the autographs. The autograph cards are a nice bonus certainly if you hit an Abreu or hit Puig or hit Mike Trout or something or one of the rare versions Um, but Topps does do a decent job with making maybe a so-so guy's autograph pretty valuable because it's in red ink and it's on a mini card or it's it's, it actually is very rare and kind of hard to hit Um, so interesting we'll see what happens uh, going forward with nostalgia but I've got 10, about 10 minutes all I want to re- run this show to, you know, anything over an hour on these shows, and it's got to be tough for you guys. I know some of you guys like the long marathon shows, but I think we're better, you know, just in today's media and today's, you guys got so much TV you can watch on demand and Netflix and Pandora and whatever else, you know, all this football and college football and pregame and postgame and pregame and pregame. You guys got a lot of cool stuff, you know, you could be entertaining yourself with. So, if you don't care about stocks, if you're honestly, if you don't care about stocks, that's that's okay. If you don't care about your retirement or your 401k, that's okay. But I would recommend finding a certified financial planner. I think it's CFP. I would search certified financial planner in Google. Those people, that's a little bit. You know, all these people out there obviously have to make a profit on their ser- uh, on their services. But from what I've heard, I don't use a CFP myself. But from what I've heard, those people have to be a little bit more objective than kind of an investment bank. Like if you call Schwab up or you call East Trade, they or you call Vanguard or whoever these guys are. If you call them up, they're probably going to recommend their own products because that's how they make a lot of money. Um, but a certified financial planner will make you aware of the fees and which ones are low and which ones are, you know, I would recommend doing that. If you don't care, if you don't want to touch your stocks, if you don't want to do anything, that's cool. But if you want to retire one day, and I think most people do, and if you want to retire and live comfortably, you need a, a decent nest egg. Unless you, you plan on working until you're 80 years old or have some kind of passive income, some royalty stream or something that, that, that pays your bills, that'd be great. But most of us want to retire. Most of us want to not work and sit around and do mow the lawn and, and watch TV all day and that's and play golf or something. You know what I mean? So my biggest advice to, to you, all you guys that don't want to manage this stuff and don't want to pay attention to it, find somebody that will because it's important. It's the most important thing you do in your life. 
is save for retirement or at least save some money for any number of reasons, for your kids' educations, for just in case something, heaven forbid, anything catastrophic happens to you and insurance only covers a percentage of it or for some reason insurance doesn't cover any of it. And you need ten thousand dollars, or you you know your car all of a sudden blows it blows the motor and, and it's worthless, and now you need to buy a new car. So you need to come up with five, six, seven thousand dollars really quick to buy a car. That's why you save money, not necessarily to retire and hit the beach and hit you know uh, go move to Florida and go on cruises and kick your feet up. Yeah, that's great. Hopefully, we all get there and you all get there. But there are other things even more important why you save money for your family, for your security, just in case you lose your job so you can survive for a couple months or a year or two years, hopefully. And if you don't care about it, find somebody that would do and I would start it like a certified financial planner. Those people are located all over the country and I've met many of them. I met actually somebody at a party uh, yesterday that was used to be a CFP and so, you know, you can though that's where i would start i'm not saying that they're the end all and be all of your financial future but i would start there and you could you can you can go from there okay stocks i'm not going to give you any of my own tips i'm not going to say go buy this stock or go buy that stock right now because literally i'm not buying i'm not buying anything because i bought in 2008 and 2009 that was the time to buy not that you if not that I haven't bought or kind of put money in or kind of tested the water here and there, but nothing at all that I was I was dead certain back in 2008 what I was buying was going to go up exponentially, and I was dead certain on it. And certainly some of them have, certainly some of them haven't. Trust me, not I haven't batted. I didn't bat a thousand. It was a high. I batted a huge percentage, a high percentage of winners over losers in 2008. And you really, I mean, it was easy. Back then, picking stocks was like, I mean, trust me, I didn't know anything about stocks and it was easy to pick uh, stocks. Now it's a little harder. The market's at all-time highs. So I sound like an idiot if I finally got on here and said, hey, guys, you guys need to buy into this because it's an all-time high. Honestly, I would build up some cash. I would kind of watch it. I would I would monitor it. I would do some paper trades. I would do some, in in other words, fake money trades. Um just do that for a while and kind of monitor and see it and get yourself into it and invest and save a, the same amount. Either pick a dollar figure. What I do is I do a certain percentage of my income because my income varies based on all the little businesses that I'm doing and kind of income streams that I have. Sometimes they're high. Sometimes they're up. Sometimes they're down. Sometimes you, I look back on it. I really didn't make that much money in a month, but I'm not really... Am I alarmed? Usually not. Not at all, usually. Because it, the next month, it'll be double, or it usually comes, bounces back the next month for whatever reason. Some things are seasonal. I invest a certain percentage of whatever I make. I figure out what I made for the month, and I say, okay, it was this amount. Well, I'm saving 10% of it. I'm usually in that 10% range, and I usually try to bump it up a little bit more probably closer to 12, 13% of whatever I, and that's probably on the high end. I think that's where you need to be. I think, I don't know what the recommendation is, but most, I think people are in that four to 5% range or 2%. I don't know what you're supposed to save uh, on your income every month, what the, the guidelines is, but I'm at 10% just because it's an easy number to come up with too. Um, and usually a little higher. So I'm probably in the 10, 12, 10 to 12%, sometimes a little higher, um, but never lower, never 
whenever I get paid, the money goes into, I have various forms of kind of investments and stuff that I'm doing, um, not just stocks, um, but investment related um, into business, buying equity into businesses, essentially. Um, You know, I do that every month. And if, if if I didn't have a good month, I still take 10% and then I cut off, you know, I don't need to eat ice cream every day. I don't need to eat, not that I do. I don't need the new video game that comes out. I'll put that off. I don't need to go play golf at an expensive course. I'll go to the $8 one or whatever. So I adjust. I don't need to live the high, the high and mighty million millionaire lifestyle every day <laughs> or every month or every week, you know, a week out of the year. Yeah, it's nice to take a vacation. So invest the same amount of money. If you don't want to do a percentage, pick an amount. It could be $5. I don't care. $5, $10, $20, $30. Pick a number and invest. Make yourself do it every month. And a lot of these things, you can do it automatically. I don't normally do that because I'm disciplined enough to do it now. But if you're not disciplined enough, set it on your broker's account or whatever. Have Call them up and have them do it for you. Say, hey, I want to invest. I want to put $5 a month in my account. And they'll do it for you. They'll do it right there over the phone for you. Read everything with a grain of salt. Um, ex- yeah, read everything ex- with a grain of salt except for a balance sheet and a cash flow statement from a legitimate company. I've read balance sheets and cash flow statements of public companies, but that are f- total frauds. And so you have to read the ba- even the balance sheet with a grain of salt because they're, they're fudging. They're, those numbers aren't even right. And so you have to do even more digging to prove that they're a fraud. And I do that. But read everything on Yahoo Finance with a grain of salt. Read all the press releases. Seekingalpha.com is a, is a website I go to. I often comment on there. Um, I, I have a lot, of, a lot of comments on there. And I get, I, I mean, people think, God, people think, uh, people think I'm mean to tops or breakers or whatever. You should see what I say to companies that I think are frauding people that I think are frauding not only investors, but the employees that are work there because the employees that work there aren't going to work there very much longer. You should see what people say to me. God, it makes it makes uh, some of these softball little lobs on. I know guys like to say on Twitter, "Oh, your sports card radio sucks. Sports card radio is uh, is bad for the hobby." Blah blah blah. Guys, on the on these message boards, guys post my phone number or my address. I've had people call me. So I got to pick my spots. Usually, I have to back up what I say often in like hardcore facts. Otherwise, yeah, you will get called out. Even if you back it up with a bunch of facts, these fanboy shareholders are are delusional, completely delusional half the time. So if you guys think my Twitter wars on on sports cards are bad, I have a finance Twitter account. I have like 15 Twitter accounts, and I get, I get into it on all of them, especially my finance one, especially with dumb idiot shareholders that think, oh, I've lost 50 per, I've lost 80% of my investment over the last four years because of mismanagement. Oh, but all of a sudden they're going to turn it around or this idea that's been failing for the last four years will turn around or, oh, the $20 million on the balance sheet will all of a sudden go away and they'll figure out a way to repay it even though they're not even coming close to being profitable. Trust me, I get into it with a bunch of these idiots. All day long. You got to read everything, including what I say, with a grain of salt. 
because there's often uh, motivations on either side, either fanboy shareholders that want their shares to go back up or people like me that are shorting this stuff or putting on bearish uh, you know, option trades uh, when I can't. I just started doing that. Um, it's a little safer way to do it when you're not mega, when you don't have a mega account, going short a stock is extremely risky. Um, but options is a, is still very, very risky. Um, but if you know what you're doing, you can kind of limit your risk. But anyways, so listen with everything on a grain of salt and form your own opinions. This is why I'm often doing that in the sports card world, because this is what I have to do every day. I have to read this BS article on Seeking Alpha. Which I go, to, I get ideas there. I see market sentiment there. There's all these bearish, uh, you know, articles on some company or bullish article on a company. It's like, wow, maybe I should take the other side, or maybe what's really going on here? Do all these guys trying to push it shorter, or all these guys trying to run the stock up because they're employees or they're getting paid by the company? You got to be able to read through all that. And in the end, how I make the most. Most 90% of my money is in some kind of fund or I, I give my money for, I like to keep my expenses on those funds um, under under 1%. I don't think a, a guy deserves 1% of my money every year just for kind of sitting on his ass and, and creating some kind of algorithm to uh, follow an index. Um, so I like those to be in the half percent even range. Um, 1% maybe for a more active fund, actively managed fund. So 90% of my money doesn't even go into individual stocks. Because quite, quite honestly, I would say 90% of individual stocks are not even worth investing in. 90% of these companies out there that you see on CNBC, you see on Bloomberg, they're POSs. I'll try to keep this as as a family-friendly show as I can. All those stocks are pieces of crap. of them, they're pieces of crap companies run by pieces of crap CEOs that are doing nothing but drawing a heavy paycheck. And then when he gets fired, he gets a bunch of more money. It's a good old boys club, but there are diamonds in there. It's like going and mining for diamonds when you're investing in the stock market. There's all this crap out there. You got to dig through the dirt, dig, 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 and finally find a diamond. And that's what I do. You listen to conference calls. Every quarter, the company should get on a call and should you should be able to call in and ask, ask questions. Every quarter. And if the company doesn't do that, they're a fraud, period. Because if you can't, man, if you're CEO or CTO and all those guys, it should be all of them. All the C-suite should be on the call. You should be very concerned if the CEO of the company doesn't get on there, unless it's like a Warren Buffett type guy. But even Elon Musk, if you guys want to talk to Elon Musk, call in on the Tesla call. Maybe you get through, maybe not. Maybe on a, on a company that popular, they've got a long, long stretch. But maybe you look up to some of these CEO. Call them and ask them stuff on a conference call. That's where you get a lot, you know, that's where you get a great idea of leadership. Is the guy on the, is the CEO on the conference call, is he just reading from the paper, from the press release you can read on, you know, PR.com or whatever? A lot of CEOs do that. They'll just read off the sheet that they sent to the press release or read off some PowerPoint presentation that they've showed to investors already. And then he'll, he'll kind of vaguely answer some questions at the end. Or is he a leader? Is he telling you? Is he is he telling you about this company straight from his heart? 
and he knows it like the back of his hand, that, that's the first step in identifying a great company and one you want to invest in. Is the CEO, is the guy at the top a guy you can believe in? Is he a leader? So many people just buy stocks and they don't even know who the CEO is. They know his name, but they don't know what kind of character he has. I can't tell you how big of a mistake that is. And I tell you that from my own mistakes myself, investing in companies on a whim, on a tip, on a whatever, and then I lose all my money. Literally, I lose all my money, not my whole account. That would be retarded. But I lose whatever I put into that company. I've done I've, at least a dozen times. I've I've seen my investment wipe out fifty percent. Now, did, was it a huge percentage of my portfolio? Never, never do I do more than in speculative hot tip plays. Do I do more than a couple hundred bucks? But now I don't do do them at all. I don't even touch them. I only focus on the 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 guys I believe in, the guys that have a vision, the guys that have a plan, the guys that aren't just being a CEO to make a couple hundred thousand dollars and do these investor conferences at the Ritz Carlton and get sucked off in the office and all this other stuff. I want the guy that's working for me every day. I don't care if I have a hundred shares or a thousand shares or ten thousand shares. I want whoever is at the top to be working harder than everybody. And trust me, it's hard to find those people. In the last six years, I found maybe three or four people that I could say off the top of my head that I trust and believe that those, they are that kind of leader. Everybody else, eh, kind of so-so. Sometimes shows those qualities, sometimes doesn't. I don't want those people. When we're talking about my money, and since it's my decision, my money, my my future, I'll invest with the best of the best. I'm not trying to sign, uh, you know, Sean Marion or Jordan Crawford or Greg Monroe. I'm not trying to assign the second tier free agent. I'm trying to sign LeBron James. And that's how you should feel when you go out there. Yeah, you can invest in your little, um, I invest in mutual funds. I invest in ETFs. I invest in uh, not really bonds right now, but I'll probably get back into bond investing at some point. I invest in all these funds and let them make all those decisions. But when you're making the decision on the stock, you need to be confident and you need to do all the research and you need to um, believe that believe in the leader of the company, essentially. And you do that by listening to conference calls and you get an idea of how these guys communicate with investors and, and people out there and owners of the company. And if he sounds good, then you start digging into the SEC documents. Every company is, is if they don't pull, if they don't, and if they make their financial di- uh, documents hard to find, that's a huge red flag. When a company, if you get a hot tip on a stock and you go try to find their balance sheet and try to find their, uh, their numbers and, and you can't find them or there's stuff missing, huge red flag. All that stuff should be laid out for you. You would never buy a company if you didn't get to see all the numbers. And that's exactly what you're doing when you're buying stock. You're not buying the whole company, but you're buying a little bit of it. So you better know all the numbers. And trust me, I went to college. I took accounting class. I took business finance. I studied finance in college. It it takes a while to learn how to read the balance sheet. Now, I mean, six years ago when I was reading balance sheets, I really had to study them and really read them. Now I can glance over a balance sheet and instantly just check it off. This is crap or this is this is a company I look further into. I'll look at the balance sheet, look at kind of the cash flow statement, and I'll say I'll either say, Wow, that that looks good. Let me see if it all adds up in in, in the math and, and kind of reading through the company. 
or nine, I would say 99% of the time I look at the balance sheet and I look at the cash flow statement and I say, wow, I think I have a better balance sheet and cash flow statement. Why in the hell would I uh, invest in a company if I'm running my own company better than that? I want to invest in people more talented than me. Obviously, that's how you grow your money, If you, you know. So I always look for businesses that are doing, that are better than mine, better, better business model, better idea, better way to kind of consolidate the industry or whatever than what I could possibly do on my own. And I say, wow, it's a great cash flow statement. That's a great balance sheet. The company's doing really well. Let's go see about leadership. Let's go see about employees. Let's go see about the product. Let's go see about the service, whatever it might be. Let's go see about competitors. So that's what I do most of the day. And so you guys see me every once in a while spat off on Twitter or once in a while I do these once a week now. I'm doing these podcasts. 99% of my other time is filled watching the sports that we, you know, we, we occasionally talk about on the show here. Um, or I'm watching finance news. And so it's it's what I do. It's not for everybody. And again, I said, if if looking at balance sheets, listening to the conference calls, to me, that's fun. I stay up and I, I wake up sometimes. At, I have to wake up sometimes at like 5.30 in the morning, 6.30 in the morning. That's not that early for me. The market opens at 6.30. I, I snap, go, I like literally have an internal alarm. I wake up at about 6.20 every day during the week. Mind you, weekends, I might sleep in a little later. But during the week, I'm get, I can't wait to get up and see what the stocks are doing. Down or up, I don't care at this point. I'd rather the stock. I'm hoping the stock. I'm one of those sick guys that kind of hopes the stock market starts going down because it's even easier. I I don't have to read conference calls. I don't have to listen to balance sheets. I don't have to do any of that. If the market's trending down, I don't have to do any of that. I can just go short and do a, uh, you know bearish option trades and make money. So I'm, I'm sick. I hope it does that because then I've got easy money. Predicting a stock's going to go up and the company's going to do well is actually rather difficult. So you might, you might want to think about that as we're at a kind of a market high. You might think, well, I don't think it's going to churn higher. We're coming up on an election year, and those are always kind of interesting years in the stock market. So, um, you know, or we've got all this turmoil in, in, in overseas, and that might erupt things. You know, you might have whatever theory you have. You might not want to go long the stock market now. You might want to say it's going to go down or this company sucks. And it's that, that's essentially what I do. I don't bet the whole market's going down. I, I don't pretend to be that smart. But I certainly, a lot of biotech stocks, a lot of these ideas, oh, we're going to cure cancer kind of stocks are often just complete trash pump and dump type things. And so those are, that's kind of my layup trade to, to watch, the, you know, watch the equity kind of drain out of those businesses. But anyways. I think we've gone on 10 more minutes than I wanted to. I hope I just wanted to give you my philosophy. But from now on, um, anytime I feel like I've gotten enough feedback from people, and I think maybe a lot of you, obviously, if you like baseball cards, I think there's a really good parallel, especially if you like buying and selling baseball cards. If you like check out my cards and you like buying and selling cards on there for, for you know, pennies or a couple dollars here and there, you would love trading stocks because it's, I mean, it's way more risky. It's way riskier. Um, and 
I wouldn't say even more complicated. It's probably less complicated, but it's more risky to trade stocks over buying and selling cards on Check On My Cards. But it's similar, similar type of experience, similar type of enjoyment. So I encourage you guys to just get your toes wet. But consider it like a trip to the Baccarat table or something like that. Put your toe in with only the amount of money you're willing to lose. Do not ever... I see these shows on CNBC and it makes me cringe. People liquidate their 401k or take their whole retirement account and put it into one thing. Put it into a guy. Put it into one fund. That is like 101 to go broke, essentially, or get scammed. Don't ever put all your retirement or all your eggs in one basket. And certainly if you're just getting into the stock market, maybe you got a hundred bucks, 200 bucks or whatever it is. Maybe you got a thousand bucks. Maybe you are doing really well and you actually have maybe like $10,000. That's really $10,000. If you lost it all, it's not going to hurt you. Um, and there's a lot of people out there. There's a lot of people out there that are in that boat. Um, but don't go over that. Don't if if a hundred thousand would hurt you, if a thousand dollars would hurt you, if a hundred dollars would hurt you, don't do that much in the market because you can lose it as fast as you can gain it. Trust me. Again, I've picked a lot of winners, but I've picked a lot of losers too, and I tend to remember those more than the winners. And that's similar to cards. You probably tend to, when you open up boxes, you tend to remember the bad. You probably remember, um, the, you remember the really good hits. You remember your, your NFL shield cards or logo mans or really hot rookie at the time. Um, but you probably remember too a lot of the skunks. Like, oh, I, you know, and that happens probably more often than, than we want. Um, but you often remember, oh, it sucked. It sucked. And I've, you know, it's hard to remember back on like all your big hits um, unless you're just ripping this stuff all the time. But uh, so it's similar. I, I see a lot of parallels with stocks. So anytime I have a hot tip, I'll give it to you guys and I'll give you my recommendation. Um, I will say it'll likely be on the short end right now. A couple months ago, I was there's a stock called Wix and uh it recently IPO'd at 30 bucks or 20 bucks and went up to 30. And I think I had the only article on the internet saying everybody should sell that stock. Now it was back in March, I think, I wrote that article. I put it on Seeking Alpha. I put it on blogs and stuff. And I said, you know, Wix, Wix is way overvalued. Well, now Wix, I think as of today, is like 17 bucks a share. So obviously I was right. Um, and I think that's the easier trade. I think, you know, finding... Finding those diamonds in the rough are tough. It's just like sports cards. Finding like the Jordan PSA 10 is kind of hard. Finding the the Kobe Bryant one-on-one autograph is hard. Whether you're trying to buy it online or you're trying to uh, pull it out of a pack, it's hard. And so uh, keep that in mind when you're investing in individual stocks. It's hard to pick winners. So I would invest the bulk of your money in some kind of fund. Let let a professional or let some index kind of track you, uh, track your investments Um and when you want to, when you pick a stock, do the research, read the documents, know what you're putting your money into, know what you're doing. And at the very least, know the leadership, know the CEO, know, know how he, t- he compensates himself and make sure he's aligned with you and your best interest. Those are my tips for today. Hopefully you guys enjoyed the show. We'll come back. I don't know, next week probably or whenever I feel like it. And we'll, we got more listener questions. I have more that I will get to and uh, 
We've about wrapped it up for today. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We are out of here.